good morning, church. Um, <laughs> he, he's like, he's our, our snore masker. Have you ever noticed, like, as soon as I start talking, somebody's snoring? It's, it's always him. So if he's snoring, then nobody knows if there's additional people snoring. He's kidding. Maybe I'm just boring. Thanks, Don. I'll try not to be. Um, we're continuing. Uh, this is actually the final chapter in our series that we've called Entitlement. And we've been looking at what happens when I think, or what happens when I have my rights and things that I have earned or things that I deserve, but me using my rights comes into conflict with Jesus' mission and what he wants to do. What happens when my rights become an idol that I worship? And so this morning, the the title is My Idol. What is my idol? What do I look out for the most? Um, there's a story that one of my professors in school told me, and I've never, ever forgotten it. And there's not very many of those. I went to school for lots of years and heard a lot of stories and a lot of illustrations, but this is one that stuck out to me. Um, and uh, maybe you have a similar story. He had two sons, and one son was an infant, and one son was a little bit older. And the older son was playing. He had a ball or or something like that, and he was throwing it against the wall, and it was bouncing off, and he was laughing and chasing the ball everywhere. And he was just just playing. He was so focused in on all of the fun that he was having. And he smacked the ball as hard as he could, and the ball bounced off the wall and made a beeline and smacked the baby in the face because the baby was sitting nearby. And, and, and the older boy is just devastated. And, he, and, you know, dad's there. He's comforting the baby, trying to get the baby to calm down. But then he has to comfort the older son because the, he's upset. Like, I hurt, I, hurt, I hurt my baby brother. I hurt my baby brother. And he's going, Daddy, 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 I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. And he turns to his son and said, I know you didn't mean to, but you didn't mean not to. And that's why it happened. See, and I think that's where I get locked in a lot, and I see it in my kids, and I won't pick on any of them, but I see it in myself too. There's times where there are consequences to the actions that I have done that have impacts on people that I didn't expect. I didn't mean for it to happen like this, but I also wasn't paying attention to the people that were around me, and I wasn't thinking about what could possibly happen in order to avoid a bad outcome for somebody else. I didn't mean to, but I also didn't mean not to. And there's times where we're so focused on ourselves and on on what we want to do that other people get hurt because we didn't mean not to protect other people. And so we're going to look at a passage this morning that I think there's a very similar kind of principle at play there. So would you open your Bibles with me um, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? And if you're, if you're using a story Bible, they're in the chairs right in front of you. If you're using a story Bible, it's on page 794. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, page 794, if you're using one of these Bibles. And before we get rolling any farther, I'd like to pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you <laughs> that you have looked out for our best interest above your own. As we sang this morning, um, we were dead in our sins and we we were just completely running away from you and enemies of you and yet you stepped in 
and took over and you arrested our death. You became master over it. And Lord, you chose to give us life. God, would you help us to be mindful of that over and over again through this week and even in this morning? And God, would you fill our hearts with gratitude for the ways that you've stepped into our lives? And Lord, as we look to this passage, Father, I pray that uh, where you have spoken clearly, God, that your clear word would shine through. And God, that anything I say that might muck it up or confuse it, Lord, that that stuff would just get washed away. But Lord, that your word and the truth of your word would stand clear this morning and that you would use your spirit in your word to draw us closer to you today. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to begin in verse 17. I'm going to read down through verse 22 just to get into this. Um, I'll just, I'll read it and we'll come back and explain it. 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, yeah, chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And if you remember... As we've been going through this, we've highlighted that this is a letter that was written by the pastor who started this church. And he's heard some rumors about what's going on, and he's responding to a letter that, they, that they've written. And he's giving them some correction. He's, he's saying, he's said in the chapter that we talked about, or the part of the chapter that we talked about last week, he says, you guys do a great job at keeping the traditions that I left for you. You guys are meeting together regularly. You guys are having worship gatherings. You're, you're praying together and you're studying the word together. Like I don't, like you're doing the right things. But he turns here and says, there's something that I can't commend you in. And that is you're getting together and you're following the form of a tradition or an ordinance that I left for you, but you've completely forgotten the heart of it. You've completely divorced what it was meant to celebrate from the action. You're doing the things that I told you to do, but not for the reasons that I told you to do it, right? So I want to highlight um, one small difference between what we talked about last week and what we're going to be talking about this week. There are kind of um, three levels of practices for our faith. And the first level are, are kind of non-negotiables. We call them ordinances. Um, and the primary ordinances are communion and baptism. They are expressions. They're things that we do that Jesus left for us to do that we all must do in order to follow Jesus. Jesus said, you come and follow me, then be baptized, and then do this in remembrance of me. Celebrate communion in remembrance of me. Do these things regularly. This is an ordinance. This is something that I leave for you. What we talked about last week were more traditions. We talked about the tradition of head covering or not head covering, as the context talked about. And, and that's, a, that's a tradition. That's something that um, changes from country to country. You realize that in America, it would be really offensive for me to grab Don and, and uh, John and Bernie and us to go out to the pub after church on, on Sunday. Like, 
for us in America, that would be a bad tradition. But if we were in Ireland, that's part of the culture, and they wouldn't think twice about it. Why wouldn't the pastor go out to the pub? There are traditions that we hold that, that vary from culture to culture, and, th- and there's not necessarily sin in that, but there are things that we want to be careful of. We think there are things that we want to be wary of, because remember, Jesus shines new light on our traditions. Why? So they reflect his truth. In the same way that the moon doesn't have any light by itself, it's reflecting the sun. Traditions and what we do don't have any light. It's just stuff that we do that's kind of weird. But if it's reflecting his truth, then it's something beautiful and something that's helpful to us. So that's ordinances and traditions. And then there are just kind of, there's something else we call local practices. There are things that we do at Grace Church that another church down the street might not do. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just a different way that we do expressions. We have, um, some churches would call it a liturgy. There's a, a habit, a practice, a form of how our worship gatherings go that we're familiar with. To such the degree that when we change it, I want to give you a heads up. And like I did last week, I said, hey, we're going to do something a little bit different. And then this week, I said, hey, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do the offering at a different time. Like, that's nowhere in the Bible does it say you must, thou shalt take up the offering at this point in your worship gathering. It's not in there. And yet, that's been our tradition. That's been our practice for years and years and years. So when we change something like that, I'm going to give you a heads up, and, and we'll do it a little bit differently. Does that make sense? There's kind of three stages here. Ordinances, traditions, and practices. What Paul is talking about here is an ordinance. He's talking about communion. I left you communion to do it, but you've completely messed this up. This this is completely wrong. And he, he says as a side note, he says, look, I've heard that there are divisions among you. I already talked about that. Do you remember uh, we did a series called Shiny Things back starting in September, and we were talking about unity and, and how do we think about our pastors and our leaders. And he says, you guys have divisions, and this is silly. You shouldn't do that. And so he's, he's addressing that again, but he's saying, look, I know that to some degree there have to be distinctions among you. Otherwise, you wouldn't know who belongs to the family or not. You know when somebody from outside of your family shows up at Thanksgiving. Like, there aren't hard and fast rules necessarily that people have to have a certain bloodline. You're not doing a DNA test when people walk into your Thanksgiving meal. But we kind of know when somebody shows up that wasn't necessarily part of the family. Like, when you become an in-law to somebody else's family, there's a couple of years it takes to get comfortable with those people. And then there's maybe even a couple more years where you start to call them my family. That's something that I've been convicted of in the last couple of years. Like, there have been times, often, regularly, where I've said about Jesse's family, well, that's Jesse's family. And now God's brought me to the place where I'm like, oh, no, 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 that's, that's also my family. Like, they are part of my family, too. I need to own them. <laughs> for better or for worse, I need to own them. <clears throat> you guys know what I'm saying there. So he's saying, look, it's, it's not like I, I, you need to understand that there are some divisions because those of you who are genuine, those of you who have a real faith, it's going to show. If somebody, if, if somebody walks in and they're a thief and they're regularly stealing and they're constantly stealing, they walk into a group of people who don't steal stuff, they're going to feel uncomfortable. And that's not wrong. It's part of how it works. You, when you walk into a new family, the DNA is different and the structure is different. And it's okay for new people to feel uncomfortable at first. That doesn't mean we reject them. That doesn't mean we push them out. That doesn't mean that we say, you can't come in here until you behave like we do. It simply means like, hey, you're coming into a new family. 
And when Jesus gets a hold of your heart, there are some things that are going to change about your behavior. Just want you to be aware of that. And this is what it looks like. See, I was reminded this week that Jesus never said to anybody, like, hey, follow me and then I will heal you. Regularly, he would touch people and heal them before extending an invitation to follow them. And sometimes I feel like I get it backwards. Like, you got you, you to behave the right way. Uh, you got to shower before you come to church. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Let me give you the healing first, and then I'll invite you to follow me. So <clears throat> that's actually a side note. That's not the point of what he's trying to say. He says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You're not doing what you think you're doing. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So when we're talking about communion, what comes to mind for you? This is where you interact. You can give me an answer. A wafer? Is that it? Come on. Grape juice? Grape juice? <laughs> okay. So we get a wafer. Uh, sometimes they're styrofoam. Sometimes they're bread. And we get a, a little cup of grape juice, right? And that's what we think about when we come to communion. That's, that's actually the mind, that's the tradition that I grew up in, that when we said communion, what we meant was the bread and the cup. Now, imagine this. You sit down to a communion meal... And you have, like, what do we serve those in? They're like this big. They're hard, not even a shot glass. Like, how many of those do you have to do to get drunk and full? A lot. That's a lot. Like, I don't know who's doing those dishes, but it ain't me. So I, here's, here's what I want you to know. Sometimes uh, our traditions don't get the full, full picture. There's something that I've learned, and, some, and the reason why we read John 13, there's something that I've learned that was different from the tradition that I grew up in. When Jesus talked about communion, when he instituted the communion, there were a couple of things that he did that night. We noticed in John 13, what's the first thing that he did? He washed their feet. And, and Peter wanted to fight him over. He said, you're not going to wash my feet? You're not my servant. He says, look, unless I serve you in this way, you don't have any part of me. He says, oh, okay, well, you, can even, you can give me a shower, Jesus. Like, I, don't, I want to be a part of you, whatever that is. You know, Jesus, or Peter's always sticking his foot in his mouth. And he says very distinctly, as I have done for you, so you do also for each other. So they're sitting down to a meal. He washes their feet. They share a meal. And at the end of the meal, he takes the bread and the cup and they celebrate that. There are three components to the meal. So when, when Paul says, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, it's not what you mean. We're in eating. One goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. They're not getting drunk on the wafers and on the little wine cups. Like there's actually a meal that goes along with the communion that they're celebrating. They would get together and have a meal. Now, what, where do you eat if church buildings don't exist? Like when we celebrate communion, we all gather here in this building. But this is in Roman times. The synagogues won't let you in because you're not Jewish enough. There aren't, like, there's pagan temples, but they do a completely different thing. Where do, where do you meet to have this kind of celebration? Somebody's house. Who owns houses? 
Rich people. Yeah. So you've got people who've come to trust Jesus and you've got rich people who own a house, who have a place to gather, and you've got poor people who don't, but they're all coming together to share a meal. And actually the way that the houses were set up is that there's like a courtyard and off of the courtyard is the dining room. And there's not room for everybody in the dining room. There's only room for like maximum 12 people. See, Jesus probably only had 12 disciples because that's who would fit in the upper room. I'm kidding, that's not it. But there's just a small section of people. And so the people who owned the house, it seems like, it seems like the people who owned the house were eating in the dining room and excluding everybody else as part of the church. They were having their own meal, having the best wine, having the best food, and getting hammered to celebrate Jesus, right? <laughs> and there's poor people that are out in the courtyard like, hey, we came for communion and we don't, we don't have anything. He says, he says, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Like, don't you live there? Isn't this already your food? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So what, what God had set up, the ordinance that Jesus had left for us, was to commemorate and remember who? Him. And what about him specifically? His sacrifice. When we read John 13 this morning, what is, what is the tone? What is the attitude that Jesus has in that upper room? Servitude. The teacher comes in and I almost like knelt down to take off Max's feet. That's a little bit, takes off his shoes. That's a little bit dangerous. But I'm just, the, the, the servant, the servant comes in and he takes off the shoes of his disciples and he kneels down and he washes their feet. And they're like, what do you, you don't serve me like this. This isn't how it's supposed to be. He says, you don't understand yet. But I need to set an example with you. This is the, you don't know this yet, but this is the last night we have together before I'm going to do something that you can't follow me in. I'm going away and you can't come yet. And you don't know what's coming up, but I do. And I need you to understand that the faith that you have in me isn't so that you can be better than everybody else, which is actually what they were arguing about going into the upper room. The faith that you have in me isn't about who gets to sit at my right hand. The faith that you have in me is who gets to serve at the feet of the lowliest. And so when Corinth got together, they had forgotten the whole heart of what communion was meant to be. This beautiful picture of the Savior and Creator of the world bending down to wash our feet. And they had turned it into, ah, it's Friday night, five o'clock somewhere. What preferences are we tempted to elevate over our faith family? This, this cycle of a meal, um, it wasn't actually that uncommon for rich people to hold feasts for the rest of the community to be able to eat. And it usually was related to like their job. Like the chief landscaper in the city would host a meal for all the other landscapers and it was like a guest of honor got to come in and eat in the dining room and everybody else got to eat the, you know, scraps outside. Like that wasn't unusual in their culture. But they took that and imported it into the church and forgot Jesus at the middle of it. What are our preferences? What are the things that we're comfortable with 
that we're tempted to elevate above other people in our faith family. It's not limited to this, but low-hanging fruit for me is the songs that we sing. When I talk to people that don't come to, like one of the first questions, they don't ask if I teach the Bible. They don't ask if I love Jesus. They say, what do you sing? You have a drum set? I'm, I'm amazed at how often I get asked, do you have a drum set? And I don't understand. But that's a preference. It's a personal preference. I know that our time of worship is, is, is intimate, and I pray that it is time that you connect with God in a very special way. But if your preferences for what we sing are elevated over the faith family that God has placed you in, then you've missed it entirely. What are the preferences that we're tempted to elevate over our brothers and sisters? He's, he's going to explain now the heart of it. If you read with me, chapter, chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's, he wants to explain the heart of the ordinance. First of all, Paul's saying, look, I might be your pastor. I might be the guy who started the church. I might be the guy who's responsible for writing you a letter and helping you to understand some things, but I didn't make this up. What, what, what does he say? For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. I'm the waiter at the table. I didn't cook the food. I don't own the table that you're sitting at, but I took from the master and delivered to you as faithfully as I could. If you got a problem with the ordinance, take it up with Jesus. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he did this. He set this example of service for us so that we could remember and so that we would proclaim what? His death until he returns. His death, burial, resurrection, and promise to return the gospel the good news of what he's done. It's the Lord's Supper. <laughs> it's not ours. He did, it, he did it according to his rules. He made it according to his rules. It's his deal, and we're to remember him and what he's done. And the atmosphere, we've already pointed out, the atmosphere of that whole thing in John 13 is just service. You don't know what I'm getting ready to go through, boys. I've walked with you for three years. I know your faults. I know your failures. I know one of you will betray me tonight. And yet I will wash each of your feet. I will serve each of you to show you that our faith gives no right for us to neglect our neighbor. The Christian faith rubs against us. There's nobody who I've ever met that, 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 does, that shouldn't have some problem with a component of the Christian faith. It doesn't, it, it doesn't come into our lives in order to make us comfortable with the way we've always been. It actually draws us into something greater and something more beautiful than the life that we could make for ourselves. 
And I know most of us in this room probably don't consider ourselves to be wealthy, but we're sitting in an air-conditioned room. Like, air-conditioned doesn't exist all over the world. Like, we're, we're doing okay. We, we drove on paved roads to get here this morning. And many of us drove a car. Like, we, when we sit down and count it all out, over the course of world history, we're doing okay. We're doing really well, actually. And I don't want to put a percentage on it because that just gets goofy. But I want you to know, even if you don't consider yourself wealthy by the standards of your neighbors, what about your neighbors across the sea or over the course of 100 years? We have a lot. And so to the wealthy, faith in Jesus proclaims that we are beggars all. Even if you're a freed man, even if you earned your own freedom, even if you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you earned your way into the tax bracket that you're in, even if you started with nothing and you earned it all and you've got it all, or whether you inherited it from your rich grandfather, it doesn't matter. Like, we're all beggars. All the mountain of gold that we might possess when we stand in front of Jesus is nothing. He paves the street with gold. He doesn't care that much. Bill Gates will have exactly as much in his, his bank account as I do when I die because neither one of us can take anything with us. So if we're wealthy, we need to understand that we are beggars all. And when we look out into the courtyard at the poor people, the people who have less than us, do we invite them to our table to share our wealth, wealthy food? I don't know if that's the answer. Or is the answer to go out and to eat the common food with them? Either of those sounds like the example of Jesus to me. And if we're poor, if we consider ourselves poor, do we understand that when we come to faith in Jesus, he gives us an inheritance, inheritance beyond anything that we could ever earn ourselves? Do we understand that he calls us a royal priesthood? He goes to prepare a place for us, and he's been gone for a while He's a master builder, and he's the, kind, he's the guy who says, let there be light, and it is. He's the guy who says, let these things be separated, and it's done. He's the guy who creates things with his word, and he's been gone a while. He could probably say a bunch of things in the time that he's been away. He's going to prepare a place for us, and I don't know what it's going to be like, but I know it's going to be beyond my imagination. And he offers to us freely, those who have trusted him, the richest inheritance of all. Not heaven, but himself. Not the things that he can do for us, but the one who wants to dwell with us eternally. If we consider ourselves poor, there is no limit to the wealth that we have in Christ. So is your participation in church whatever that level is, or you come on Sunday morning or you come to a group and you're involved, is your participation in church all about you? Or is it all about Jesus? We're talking about entitlement. And if I'm honest, and I try to be, my idol is me. I want my rights. I, I earned what I earned, and I ought to be able to spend the money the way I want to spend it. I don't like having to give up my hard-earned cash to help people who won't lift a finger to help themselves. 
And yet that's the example Jesus started with. Oh, you're dead in your trespasses? You're angry at God? You're hostile to him? You want nothing to do with God? Let me come in and take your burden upon myself and give you my grace freely. Is your participation in church all about you and your preferences, or is it about Jesus? Because our faith gives us no right to neglect our neighbor. Let's continue reading one last section here. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. I've, I've, this passage has been used oftentimes in communion services, and, and, and the, the encouragement is, take a few minutes and examine your heart. If you've got sin between you and God, like get that sorted out because it's very, very serious. And it is. Like that, that is definitely an application of this principle. But I want you to draw, I want to draw your attention to, to one thing. In verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. As we're examining ourselves in our own hearts and our relationship to God, God says you need to realize that as we celebrate communion, as you do this in remembrance of me and this vertical relationship, understand that you need to eat and drink discerning the body horizontally. If you're angry with somebody in the church about something, go and make it right. If you've got some kind of conflict, whether it's serious or not. Like, go and set it right. Don't come to the table to celebrate Jesus' selflessness and his act of forgiveness when you're not willing to be forgiving to the other people in your life. We pray it. Or I am trying to be more in the habit of praying. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I'm so quick to allow, allow Jesus to forgive me for my sin, but when somebody forgives or sins against me, they better be ready to pay for it. <laughs> but do you know that we must first look to the needs of others and not our own? desires. Each person has an inherent dignity because we're all made in the image of God. And selfishness is a warning sign. If, if you answer the question, if you have a whole list of things, like what preferences might I be tempted to elevate over? If you have a list of preferences that you'd prefer over your brothers and sisters in Christ, understand this, that selfishness is a warning sign. What does he say? That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Like there are legit real world consequences to this. 
If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Why? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. If, if your faith is about yourself and serving yourself, it's a warning sign that you might not have a genuine faith in Christ. If, if, if you can, in good conscience, say that I'm right with God and hold anger in my heart against my brother, like there's a, there's a good chance you're not right with God. You only have one heart, and it doesn't divide very well. So if I've got anger in there against this person that wronged me 10, 20 years ago, and I want to turn to Jesus and say, oh, I love you. I love you with my whole heart. Well, no, you don't. You see that anger in there? Like, my relationship with other people and my ability to forgive other people is, is correlated to how I'm going to relate with God. And selfishness is a warning sign that you're on a wrong track. You see this all the time. It's a danger sign. So how might we be neglecting our neighbors in practicing our faith? It's a question we have to ask. Because our faith gives us no right to neglect our neighbor. Whatever our tradition may be, Whatever our regular practices are, our faith gives us no right to neglect our neighbor. What preferences are we tempted to elevate over our faith family? You can identify them. You can be aware of them. You can share them with other people. There are times where Ryan comes in and we come in on a Sunday morning and, and I'll say something and he says, whoa, you better check yourself. That is not the attitude that we come here for. And I need that. And I suspect that maybe you need it too. What are the preferences that we're tempted to elevate over our faith family? Is your participation in church all about you? Because Jesus said, hey, this is in remembrance of me. And how might we be neglecting our neighbors and practicing our faith? Our, our, our faith in truest form gives us no right to neglect our neighbor. That's why we share the good gifts that God has given us. Thanks again for listening. We hope you've been challenged, encouraged, and helped by God in His Word. If you want more information about Grace Church of Ocala or would like to get in contact with us, please visit our home on the internet, ocalagrace.org. And if we haven't met yet, we hope to talk with you soon.